Welcome, everybody, to episode 312 of Fergan the Freak. My name is the Glorious League Freak, and we have two very special guests on today. They are co-founders of Gainline Analytics, is Ben Darwin, who has been on before, and Simon Stratton. How are you both? Very good, thank you. Yeah, good, Freaky. So it's an interesting time for you to both come on because there's kind of a, a few different storylines that are coming together at the uh, same time. We've had COVID that has been a mess for teams and seasons. We've got the State of Origin teams have been selected and we've got a real outlier in the NRL season in the Penrith Panthers. Um, so it, it's a cool time to have you both on. So first of all, like, how have the COVID stoppages and changes in the regular season formats affected the calculation of of cohesion across all the different sports that is both cover? I think the first things first is that COVID becomes this really interesting experiment. And the experiment, first of all, comes with home and away. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that people say is that, you know, you know, you play a home game, you should win more games. And in the NRL, I think home, home team wins 56% of games. Well, when they started removing crowds last year, that started to drop. So that was the first thing that came up across all of sport is that we will find that crowds, not so much being in your hometown, was actually making the difference. Oh, yeah. And they actually did a study in the EPL a couple of years ago and found that for every 10,000 more people in the crowd, the referee gets more bias in terms of their decision-making. And oh, so it yeah. turns out referees are human. So that was the first thing that came out. The second, with a shorter season last year, is that it actually it actually did not give enough time for the uncohesive teams to get their houses in order. Mm -hmm. um, and so, the you know, the number one, the final was number one versus number two for cohesion. And that that's a rating we use called TWI, which we have at the start of the season, in match ones. So that certainly um, began to began to affect it, and the other components which we may or may not get to is, for example, if they end up playing a grand final away from home. I don't know if you want to touch on that, Simon, but how hard it is for the interstate clubs. Yeah, so um, I mean, one thing we found over, I mean, over the you know at least the last twenty years when I've looked at it, that it's actually really really hard for interstate clubs to win. Um, the um, the grand final. We actually see this in other sports as well. It's really prevalent in the AFL. Mm -hmm. But effectively, you're playing it up. You're playing a grand final in sort of a home stadium to um, a lot of the other clubs. And so the interstate teams actually have to be a lot stronger to actually win. So because when we do our sort of game analysis, we know basically on the mar by the markers that the away team has to be stronger than the home team because obviously there's home ground advantage associated, and some of that home ground advantage is what Ben talked about there. And so, and so um, the away team effectively has to be stronger. And so, when you do have these away, when you do have the interstate teams, they they've tended to always be these dynasties where you know the Melbourne Storm, Brisbane Broncos, you know the 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 Knights for that sort of '97. 2001, uh, yeah, 2001 period. I mean, the Bron uh, sorry, the Cowboys when they won in um, in 15, they were really strong. But they, you know, the, unlike the other interstate teams, they dropped off reasonably quickly. Well, I had some issues sort of on the way, but effectively, to be an interstate team, you you basically got to be able to build it strong mm -hmm. in that way to overcome that 
you know, effectively that you're playing away um, come that grand final period. And and does that does that effect of being away does that go up if you've got further to travel? Like, do, do you factor that into the statistics? Uh, we we don't. Anecdotally, we understand that it's there. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, if you if the Western Reds were still were were still in the competition, they'd have a massive advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if uh, the Auckland Warriors were travelling to Perth or Perth were travelling to Auckland, that would be a difference. But when you've got clubs within Sydney playing within Sydney, it's not so much. You've got clubs going up the eastern coast, it's not so much. Mm-hmm. But it really comes down to, and I think a lot of the evidence and what Ben talked about is that influence on the crowds. And that's where a lot of the, the data and, and what COVID has given us is that ability to understand the influence of crowds on referee decisions and what that happens during that that time, um, you know, during the game and without crowds, what what's influence that happens. So, you know, uh, Ben's done some stuff. He, he looked at Super Rugby over a period of time and, and the implications of travel mm-hmm. there. So there is an influence, but but the biggest influence of what we see is around the influence of the crowd um, on, on the outcome of the, the game on the day. Well, that's really cool because I don't think I've ever heard anybody um, showing statistically that the penalties in a game are influenced by not just... it. it not just it being the venue, but the actual number of fans. That's fantastic. I've actually, I saw, I saw another. This is again, this is an AFL one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been 20 years since the West Coast Eagles had more um, penalties against them in a game than for them. Oh wow! Yeah, that says something about. I think it's a combination of a number of factors. Obviously, travelling, you know, across the West, but also. Um, the influence of the crowd because yeah. I can't imagine that many support opposition supporters travel. Is that, is that just in home games, Simon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in. Uh, sorry, it's across the league. So, gotcha. but I imagine, I imagine it, it is it, it is significantly influenced by their home games. Yeah, it's offset because they get so many for them at home. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, this NRL season's been a little bit strange because we've got. Some teams that have been well, we've got the Panthers who are kind of this real anomaly um, compared to everyone else. Just looking at it from a fan's perspective, and then you've got other teams like the Bulldogs who are just so out of the competition. It's it's incredible how bad they look. Um, it, does that show up in the statistics as well? That their cohesion stats between, say, a Bulldogs team and the Panthers are so ridiculously different? So so the thing to understand, first of all, is that the league generally has been getting more and more cohesive since the Super League war. Okay, yep. So, so that was very destabilising. And if you remember, when the, when the Super League war hit, the first thing that kind of happened was a couple of clubs stayed together, Brisbane, Manly, Newcastle, when the Chiefs getting on the bus and going down, you know, signing everyone up. You know, like that manifested itself within a year of Newcastle beating Manly in the grand final and Brisbane beating all comers, basically. So, and then you have, you, know, you add all these other clubs and those clubs take from other clubs. Mm-hmm. They take oftentimes from the weaker clubs. So you have this huge destabilizing influence, which allowed Storm 
to grab players from another club themselves and win the grand final in 1999. Yeah, they got so they, since, they since got that point, two different clubs and put them together yeah. uh, with a few extras. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of um, lot of Newcastle second grade slash Hunter Mariners, you know, in that side. Um, and also they were unbelievably stable in their first two years. We've never seen a team that stable. And oftentimes that's got to do with, you know, if you don't have expectations, you're allowed to lose. Yeah, you, and you I, know, I guess the other thing is too, they, they got players at the right time. And as you say, we've never seen an expansion club where their team was set. And it was it didn't need to really be changed too much. I think I think Brisbane in '88 was probably the closest to that. They mm-hmm. started with a lot of already, you know. I think Winner Manly is it in '86 or '87 had about four or five players in the Australian team, so that kind of formed a core for Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And they won a lot of their games early, and they took large amounts of shared experience from Queensland and those guys. Okay, let's talk about the Penrith Panthers then. They're an anomaly in the sense that they're a young team that are going extremely well. On top of that, they're going well compared to historic teams anyway in the NRL's history. Are their cohesion stats just off the chart showing that this is what they almost should be doing anyway? I would say they're not an anomaly as far as we're concerned. They're just an anomaly in the NRL mm-hmm. because they've set themselves up similar to a model of, say, the Crusaders. Mm-hmm. Um, they they are they're they're actually quite hard to measure because a lot of the components around them are through their juniors, mm-hmm. and so that's harder. You know, you got to go back to look at the you know, Harold Matthews and all those competitions historically, but. You know, the, the thing is that people generally think that experience equals success and and across all sports, that is generally the case, but it's it's oftentimes if you have experience with cohesion. Mm-hmm. So when you have experience with no cohesion, you know, there's a year there's a year a couple of years ago where Parramatta Reels had the most experienced team in the comp became last. Yeah. So the Penrith are less experienced than everyone else right now, or right at the bottom. But they have experience, um, no, no experience with cohesion, and that means they're, they're performing very, very well. And they're almost kind of outstorming the storm, as I would describe it. And they've just taken it a lot deeper and done it with a lot more planning. Um, and, and the results are there. And, and particularly, it's not, they're not that much better in attack. The difference is in defence. Yeah. And and their defense is I, I've never seen a team defend like Penrith. It's uh, like the best teams I've seen are the Manly Seagulls of the mid nineties, and this Penrith team I think beats them. And it's it's incredible seeing what they're doing on defense. Um, do do you have in the cohesion ratings? Do you have anything that separates attack and defense? Simon. Uh, yeah. So we we basically got a whole myriad of markers so we look at the overall team strength mm-hmm. we look at uh, the strength of the spine we look at the effectively the weaknesses of the team we look at the weaknesses of the spine so we break the team up into the various units and so we can use that to compare team against team so understanding team strength versus opposition weakness mm-hmm. opposition strength versus um, uh, team weakness and so that that gives us a, a really good idea around outcome um, the thing about the 
Penrith at the moment, they have um, some of the best um, um, defensive markers in the competition, which is obviously reflective now, you know, reflective of their defensive ability. So their ability to defend is very high because they don't have many cohesion weaknesses um, across their team. Um, um, and it's just the nature of the way as a group they've been put together. Now, I, I guess this all leads into my next question, which is how difficult has it been to mesh the cohesion ratings between the NRL clubs and their reserve grade teams and lower grade teams since the COVID break? Because we've had the New South Wales Cup stopped being played. A lot of lower grades were very stop start. Some of them were just cancelled altogether. And so how do you take, say, <coughs> the cohesion ratings in, say, New South Wales Cup, when the competition stops, does all of that reset again? The easiest way to describe it is we look at it more along the lines of we measure first grade, but we look at the club as a system. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, for example, um, Brisbane, Brisbane has multiple feeder clubs for their for the reserve grade. In fact, most of the Queensland clubs have that type of system. Whereas, say, Penrith have their reserve grade is Penrith Panthers. The other type is what we would call an affiliate model, which is a, a, a Sydney club using a club like, say, Mounties. And they, they jump around so much, it's actually quite hard to keep track yeah. on which club is that set up. So we look at what's called TWI, which, of course, you've got like the Storm and Penrith have very high markers for TWI. And then we look at a notion which we call sort of like singularity, which is you have one club underneath you, or do you have two, or do you have three? I think as we get more complex and we get a greater level of understanding, one of the hardest parts is getting the right records. Because if you measure reserve grade, you've got to measure reserve grade all the way back, mm -hmm. you know, as far as you can. Yeah. So so that's sort of like the next step for us. And also things like Holden Cup, Harold Matthews under, under 16. I mean, most clubs don't generally use their lower grades particularly well. Yeah. And I know Phil Gould's banging on a lot about this at the moment. I'd be interested to see if he can pull off what he did at Auckland with, comparative to what he did in Penrith. Because Penrith is a big system, mm -hmm. but it's a, it was reasonably easily aligned, whereas Auckland seems like a tough cookie to crack. Yeah, and the, the thing, like, I can't believe that every team isn't looking at what Penrith has done with its junior system and just trying to copy it all. Because, like, and it's, but you need the... You need the numbers to do it as well. That's why I don't understand why a team like the West Tigers isn't looking at it. And, you know, Auckland's another one, as you say. If they get it right, it will be as good, if not better, than what the Panthers have done. But it is such a big task because there's so many influencing factors on their junior system as well over there, whereas Penrith's junior system is relatively stable in the junior area and it's more, uh, I guess you could say, compact in the area. Like, Auckland is almost drawing on all of New Zealand, which is a, a big task. I think, too, that the, generally the perspective is with boards is that they always feel like they can just acquire the talent or acquire the coach. Yep. And that's going to fix the problem rather than taking a systematic view. Um, Simon, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, um, I mean, it's been internally... You know, without actually understanding the nuts and bolts of the decisions made inside Penrith, 
it looks like that that that's the path they went down. But the decisions they made have were made easier by those junior grades being successful. Mm-hmm. Now we would advocate that you don't necessarily need to have successful junior grades to be successful in the first team because by the the nature of the way you've put it together. But the fact that they have been successful has just made those decisions easier and more palatable. And mm-hmm. in the end, it's it, it's turned that way on the field. And so other teams looking at that model might be saying, OK, I understand what's happened at Penrith, but but a lot of their success now has come from success previously, yeah. where that's not necessarily the case. Like you don't necessarily need that success. What you need is that pathway of those players coming through in that way. So that's where from you know in retrospect it's potentially easy to say oh yeah what you know we should just copy what penrith did this this in in, you know in retrospect it's probably easy to say that because of the way it's turned out it's probably Mm -hmm. harder it's probably a leap of faith for other organizations to be able to do it and not necessarily have the same level of success in the junior grades yeah yeah i would say though you know they had that success in the 20s but that group wasn't necessarily the most successful under 16s. I think part of the success of the 20s was because they held that group together. Yeah. So they they went through that process from 16s and it held through 18s and then the success came in the 20s. You know, the, you know Manchester United had a very famous version, which was the class of 92, and they actually played an FA Cup under 16s tournament and they played in a final. They got beaten very soundly by Leeds United 3-1. And this was Nicky Buck, Gary Neville, you know, Beckham, Giggs, all those guys. And so you sort of think to yourself, what happened to all those guys who were in Leeds? And none of them went anywhere, mm-hmm. even though they were actually a more successful team. And I think that's the sort of question a lot of the time is that every club has good juniors, but what happens to them? So, you know, the Knights in 15, I think, won the under-20s, um, had a really good juniors team. And, and what's happened to those guys? Where have they gone? Yeah. Also, we know that good players can come out of losing junior teams. It happens all the time. Yeah, and I guess that's the, I mean, whoever can work that out is, you know, they're the greatest coach slash manager of all time because we've all seen those junior players who you think are a lock and for whatever reason it just doesn't work out. They they find other interests. They don't progress like other players who have maybe less talent at the same age and there's really no rhyme or reason for it really when you look at it i, th- I think there's a there's a model we've been talking about which is absorption which simon's looked at quite a bit more do you want to explain that simon yeah so um we find this we found this a, a lot in uh, the premier league in the uk and in fact in, also in uk rugby league in super league um around how the academy um, how are players from the academy develop into the first team? And it's not necessarily, the quality of the academy is not necessarily a function of the academy itself or the perception of the quality. It's more about the first team. You can have two academies producing just as quality quality um, players, but if they go into a low cohesion environment in the first team, they're not going to look as good. They're no. not they're not going to have an understanding with the other players. They're not going to be able to play to capacity. And that's going to, it's going to look like, that they are poor players and that's going to be a reflection of the academy itself where you've got a guy coming out of say the Wigan or the St Helens Academy that's going to go into a highly cohesive team and you know those academies get lauded all the time because of that because of that reason it's like um you know it's like um the talent spotting from the Melbourne Storm you go into the Melbourne Storm environment everyone knows which way they're playing 
you're going to play to capacity all the time. Um, and so if your first team is highly cohesive, it's not necessarily how or, or the function of what's happening underneath. It's that player is going to be allowed to play to capacity once they get there. And does that does the cohesiveness of that team that a, a junior player comes into, even if that team is not going very well on the field, that first grade team, as long as the cohesion is high, does that help that those junior players become better players rather than? a team that's maybe going just a little bit better, but their cohesion is really low? Yeah, so if if the cohesion of the first team is low, it's mm-hmm. generally going to reflect poorly on that player coming in mm-hmm. because you're going to have players uncertain about what they need to do on the field, you know, in the defensive line, what the person's next to them gonna, is going to do. Um, in you know in the in the spine passing to ghosts um, and so it's not this it's it's generally going to reflect poorly on the person coming in um, to that first team. Yeah, because the, the, the cohesion of the team will also generally reflect in the performance anyway. Yeah. But I think if you want an example of any of this, it's Cameron Smith. Yeah. I don't think he would have become Cameron Smith at at Parramatta. No. I don't think he would have made it. And so if the Storm had taken someone else that person might have become Cameron Smith. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that starts messing with your mind is it's like it's actually not so much about who they take, it's what they come into mm-hmm. because there really wasn't a lot of evidence that he was going to become Cameron Smith or that Slater or Cronk, you know, from an early age, they weren't, you know, they weren't doing exceptionally except together at Brisbane North. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this sort of notion of absorption starts to get really interesting when you think about well, what if they got someone else? Because no one else, would, you know, really looked at Cameron Smith. The Broncos didn't want him. No. And, and the thing is, too, like you, and we've talked about this on the podcast, he's not the biggest, he's not the strongest, he's not the fastest. And one of his big, the big things about his career, especially as it went on, was he's got so much experience and so much winning experience and he knows what to do in the big games because his teams are always in the big games. But one day he ran out and he was a rookie just like everyone else. And if he'd ran out as a rookie for, you know, a team like the Eels or, you know, a team like the Titans, it, his career goes in a completely different direction. He doesn't get that experience. He doesn't get all of those winning experiences. So I, I think, too, it, uh, the, the example I like to give is is when he goes up as well to the representational teams, he <laughs> takes Melbourne Storm with him. Yes, and, and I always give the example of when Cherry Evans played State of Origin, you know, down here in Melbourne, he had a difficult night, mm-hmm. you know, whereas when Munster comes in instead, he comes on, they get ma- he gets man of the match and they win by 50. Mm-hmm. Now, Munster's not that much better than Cherry Evans. I'm not that much of an opinion on spine players, but he can't be that much better. But that was that's, that's, that's the context. It's the context of the scenario, who he's coming up with, who he's playing with, it's just so much easier for Munster in that scenario than Jerry Evans. I, I like the story of, I think, Jer- uh, Jerome Hughes. I mean, he's he's not Cameron Smith. He's doing a ride at the Storm. It, the Storm is his third club. So two other clubs potentially said, this, this isn't the right guy for us. Um, so they saw something about him that wasn't right. But he's, he's sort of doing all right now. Yeah, and, like, I know when 
they went with him as halfback. And I was on this podcast saying it's not going to work. You need a halfback. You need a halfback. You need... They can't do it with a makeshift halfback. And, of course, they went on to do it with a makeshift halfback. But if if you look at it along the lines of what you're about saying, it's, you know, because he come in into a really good environment. He had a very simple job. He knew what to do. And Bellamy's fantastic at getting a player in and saying, I just want you to do this to start with. And eventually over time that cohesion builds with his teammates that already had cohesion and they go on to do some amazing things, even though Hughes isn't a, a traditional halfback. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and that's where you feel, I mean, you, you know, your opening question a while ago about the Bulldogs, and that's where you feel for a lot of the Bulldogs players. It's not their fault that they are in a very low-cohesive low environment. So as a team, they're not going to perform. They're going to look poor, and it is sometimes reflective of them as players and the organisation. Well, it's reflective on the organisation because they've built it that way, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's also reflective on the players, and it's not necessarily the players' fault because of the nature of the way the team's been put together. Yeah, and you can see that with, uh, and I've said this this year, they're a better team in terms of talent this year and their performances are not as good this year because, it, and you, it's weird, it shouldn't be that way by the eye test, but if you look at the cohesion stats, I'm sure that they're lower this year than they were under Dean Pay, for instance, where he didn't have the same cattle to work with but they were they were together for at least a little bit of time, so he could build something with them. The, I mean, the, the biggest... hard part about this Sorry. is is you do what's called back ending, which is you improve as the season goes, but that's if you don't make changes. Mm-hmm. And the hard part is making changes when you lose is the yeah. most common thing people do. Yeah. So they so you, what that ends up happening is you keep making changes, then you lose, then the marker actually the market actually goes ahead of you. You get accelerated away. Whereas if you don't make changes when you lose, um, you improve and then you start winning games towards the back end of the season. And you can see that right now with Wests. Mm-hmm. And you saw, I think you saw it last year with the Broncos a lot. Yeah, they, they, had, a, they had an okay start and then, and then plummeted right down in terms of numbers and then again towards the end, you know, it, it comes back up. But there's there's this kind of panic that takes place. And the problem is that people's jobs are on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk to a lot of coaches and they'll say, what you're saying is right, but I can't afford to not make changes because the board's asking for it or they're telling me, you know, I've got to keep my job. And, and that that interest sometimes of holding on to your job is more important than development at the club. And, you know, we would probably look at a season and say, okay, probably six teams – are capable of winning it, maybe eight if, if you get a huge amount of luck. So for the example, Cronulla, you know, a number of years ago had, had this season where they lost three of their first four, but they they just kept the same team all the way through and went from, I think, 13th to second or something for cohesion to a home grand final won it. You can jag it. Mm-hmm. But generally, you need to think in seasons in chains. You know, this season leads on to next. What are the decisions we make? You know, you get this strange scenario whereby – you have clubs playing players who aren't going to play next year. Yeah. And not going to make the eight. Like, why would you do that? It makes no sense to me. And that's why I think this year we've seen the Brisbane Broncos. Tom Dearden's a really good example. He decided to go to North Queensland next year. And they were like, that's fine. 
but you, we can't build around you, so you're straight down to reserve grade. And now he's up at North Queensland now. Like, he moved on immediately. And I've never understood that either, where they'll keep a, a player in their team. Or even a a team that is losing really badly that has older players, and they keep running out those older players. And you know those older players are moving on either that off-season or the following season, and they're not putting their juniors out there and giving them a go, seeing what they can do together. Yep, 100%. And, and, and that's the problem is that do you have permission to fail? Yeah, and you and as you say, it's all about uh, keeping your job if you're a coach and no one wants to build the next guy's super team. <laughs> yeah, and and so I think I think that this is the great difficulty. And, and I, I know the best example I've ever seen of this was... Um, uh, Kevin Sheedy, when he was at GWS, you know, he, he would come out knowing they were going to lose games by 150 points. It just was the reality of it. And the a- AFL is the highest cohesion league in the world, so it takes the longest to build clubs. Mm-hmm. So he knew he was going to lose every game that year or maybe win one and you know, as hopeful. But he still coached as though he was a winning coach. Mm-hmm. And, he, and so what we see a lot of the time too is it's almost like the situation of losing crushes coaches. Yeah. And they lose their motivation and you can see them sitting in the box just like grumpy as all hell when what's actually happening is his team's playing to potential. The problem is the potential is so poor because the setup is so poor. Yeah. And and part of the problem is coaches make promises when they interview that they can't deliver on. Yeah. And they, they just expect, oh, I'm going to be able to sort it out, but I've got to get the job first. And And the boards want to hear certain things in interviews and the coach may not be capable of that. Um, you know, we, we know that that in all the coaches we've found, no one can really function above capacity. In other words, people can't take poorly put together clubs and win with any consistency. Mm-hmm. So therefore, they are going to lose games. So therefore, they need to get people comfortable with that. And the problem is when you interview for the job, you're not going to walk in and say, this is going to take a long time. This place is a train wreck. You know, I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose 15 games in the first year. They'll never hire you. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, generals at wartime. The ones that are successful aren't the ones that go in and tell you what they can't do. Yes. Yeah, but it's, but we, you just you, the club is so much more than the coach. Mm-hmm. It's I, really the setup first and the philosophy of the board that that influences the performance. At least there's some, I think some clubs have at least taken, you know, they've taken the pain for a long period of time that they they were able to sort of sit there and go, okay, well, what do we have to do? Um, I mean, I think the Titans are a good one that have actually been able to understand potentially the long-term drivers and then then turn around um, and have more of a long-term vision um, behind it. Because obviously... uh, um, mentioned this earlier about sort of their their original setup was very much in the short term, but that that's sort of switching to the the longer term, which is positive um, um, positive for them um, going forward if they maintain it, of course. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting about the coaches. It's it seems like every team wants to have the next Craig Bellamy, but they want it in the next eighteen months not realising that he's been there for like 15-plus years, and that's why he's Craig Bellamy. Yeah, the issue there is it's not it's, – it's, everyone thinks Craig Bellamy, but it's the Craig Bellamy and Frank Panisi show. That's yeah. the thing. You wouldn't it's, have it's, Craig Bellamy without Frank Panisi. So, so I, think, I think if you look at it from the perspective of Hendrak 
is now sorry Cleary. My apologies. Cleary is now at a club built similar to the Storm, mm-hmm. and he looks like a genius. Mm-hmm. But Tigers also signed the same guy, mm-hmm. and that did not work out. And even when he was at Penrith the first time, it didn't necessarily work out because they were in the early stages of that construction. So. Are we seeing Bellamy as a genius because he's a genius? Or are we seeing Bellamy as a genius because of the setup? Yeah. Well, we know his state of origin record's terrible. But if he went to another club, would he be able, if he went to the Bulldogs tomorrow, could he rebuild the Bulldogs and have enough time and, and, and overcome the problems with the board? Because we do see that in a lot of clubs where they'll go and get, you know, a, a, a rich benefactor will go and get, Let's say, let's say Tinkler at the Knights. He goes and gets Bennett, expecting Bennett to do what Bennett does, and he can't do it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we say, oh, Bennett's not what he was anymore, and now he's back at South and he's good again. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And the weird one with Penrith is that they had uh, Ivan Cleary, who was doing, he was putting together the base of what we've got today. And then he moves on, and they bring in Griffin, who basically picks up the mantle a bit and the and the the club just keeps going towards where it is today they get rid of him bring in cleary but it's it's really the club is has been on the one journey and as long as you've got someone that's not a catastrophically bad coach they're gonna just do the right job and you know as long as the infrastructure's there it the club will go in the right direction Uh, you know the coaches can't be miracle makers well, in, in 2013, I think their TWI was second last, something mm-hmm. like that. And it's just kept going up every year since then. Yeah. And so they've just been part of that journey. And you, if you make it about the system and not about the coach and even not about the player, you know, if, if they dumped their first grade but they kept the system going, you think they'd probably put it back together again in a couple of years. And that's what you want to be able to do to, to, to have, make this kind of thing renewable and not about an individual because then – you start to get into this language of holding together a golden generation mm-hmm. and then you tend to overdo it. So Brisbane Lions had a similar scenario in 04 is they held everybody together because they knew they'd make it successful, but they didn't know if they could renew it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to actually keep renewing it. We've spoken to clubs that said, we wish we'd gotten rid of our superstar earlier because we missed out on the next generation of kids coming through. Um, and that's you've got to be able to convince your fans that's the right way to do it. And the best one of that, of course, was Sir Alex Ferguson. Is he got rid of Ronaldo? He got rid of Beckham when their time was done, and they kept winning. Mm-hmm. That's what. That's the hard part. That's the hard part is that succession plan. Now it's State of Origin time. We haven't heard the Queensland team just yet, but last year's State of Origin series was a little bit different. And Queensland was supposed to get flogged. And, of course, they won the series because that's what they do. Was there anything in the statistics that said to both of you that that Queensland team was either going to win the series or, or at the very least, do better than everyone else expected? Simon, do you want to speak to that? Um, so the, it's interesting, State of Origin over the last few years, Sort of the numbers, especially for Queensland, have obviously dropped quite a lot just because of the nature of um, who they've got, which was probably pretty reflective of the season before mm-hmm. in that. Um, the biggest standout last year was um, through the Blues selection in the fact that they um, had um, – they, they basically threw the centres. They they chose 
they didn't choose centres in the centres. Mm-hmm. And so what we're finding is um, around sort of catastrophic weaknesses um, in sort of defensive areas on the edges that um, they can they can if they are found out they can be exploited um, pretty well. So so one of the differences we felt um, last year was that which again with this new Blues team that's put out with um, Mitchell and who's the other centre? Trebojevic. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, being chosen in the centres, there's a little bit of a um, um, red flag against that mm-hmm. um, coming into this. But ultimately, it is team against team. So the context is who they're up against in that way. Uh, is there going to be a Queensland spine that's going to be able to exploit that in that way? But um, sometimes when the numbers are really, really low, which they have been over the last couple of years, it just comes down to um, individual skill sometimes. Mm-hmm. Ben? Yeah, I think that, that that across, you know, if you look at the Queensland team five years ago, the numbers were absolutely spectacular. Mm-hmm. And most of that was coming out of Broncos, Storm, um, Cowboys. Yeah. That was a form because they're not playing enough as Queensland. Um, and it's almost like New South Wales every year was trying to find a combination that could pull it off. Mm-hmm. And the thing with combinations, you don't you don't find combinations, you build combinations. Yeah. So um, that was the that was the difficulty for New South Wales during that period is they didn't really have them in New South Wales because most of the clubs in New South Wales weren't built that well at that point. Now we've got a different scenario. No no clubs really are forming the basis except you know if they if if New South Wales perhaps went down more of a Penrith line and I know Joey Johns is starting to sort of you know, talk in these terms mm-hmm. um, is that they could theoretically put that together. Um, and then there's also, you know, which guys are qualified to play for New South Wales in this series. So generally the whole thing has come down in terms of cohesion over the last two years. Mm-hmm. And um, and then it just becomes about where the fault lines are and, and there's fault lines everywhere in both teams now. Okay, so that's interesting. So you can have maybe two teams that overall their cohesion isn't high for one of the teams compared to the other team. Although in state of origin, it sounds like they're both generally a little lower um, than normal at the moment. But if one team has a glaring weakness or a hole in it, that can be seen as something that the lower cohesion team overall can exploit. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it really comes down to, individual relationships on the field mm. you've got positional understanding you've got system understanding so if a guy has never played for example man on man defense versus zone defense i'm using a rugby term here but you know if they if they're not used to certain aspects there's different forms of cohesion so there's the system there's people and there's role yep. and so when you pick guys playing out of position you get people you get ambiguity you get confusion when you've got people playing next to each other they've never played with each other you get the same type of scenario. So, um, and with both teams, they're all over the shop. The key is also is there's certain, you know, obviously within the sides, within the the edges, the edges are extremely important. And so when you have ambiguity and confusion in those edges, that's much more telling than up the middle. Um, and I mean, one of the pluses, a big plus for the New South Wales team is having Luai and Cleary in the mm-hmm. halves. Um, obviously coming out of Penrith and, and Cleary's obviously spent a bit of time with Tedesco and Cork <coughs> um, in origin. So, you know, there's a reasonable amount of 
time together in that spine. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in saying that, you know, it's where the where the the the, the um, sort of the edges the edges of the edge is is a critical one. Sort of the inside of the the left and right edge. If mm-hmm. there are sort of big gaps in there, they can be exploited pretty well. So you know, likewise, like I said, with New South Wales, with having those centres who aren't centres. Um, not only do you have a lack of positional understanding, but you you, you, you tend to have a high level of um, lack of understanding with the players around you. And so having a high understanding with the halves is good, but then, you know, working off the halves, um, having a you know, some level of understanding is it, it helps in it from, from an attack perspective and also from a defence perspective. It's interesting that you say that because I, I remember when we first talked to Ben about cohesion and it, it was always stuck with me and my New South Wales team would have had Matt Burton and Stephen Crichton in it for the same reason of, you know, having that cohesion between um, the edges of the team and the halves. And uh, I, you know, I knew that, and I did get around to it, unfortunately, but I knew if I put my New South Wales team out and it didn't have Tom Trebojevich in it or Latrell Mitchell in it, people were going to go off their heads and think I was a Panthers homer. But, uh, yeah, I would have gone with the Panthers centres, to be honest, for that that reason. You know, they've been playing there all, almost all season. They've got their teammates on the inside of them. They're, they're comfortable in their roles. We've seen that for the Panthers. Um, so it, it was interesting that they went with the two fullbacks, full-time fullbacks in the centres. I, I hope it doesn't go as badly as it did for them last year when they had a five-eighth and fullback in the centres and they got torn apart because of it. One of the strengths Queensland used to have is when you had a really dominant Queensland team in the NRL, you could sort of choose the core out of that and that automatically gave you that sort of high level of understanding. With having sort of so-so Queensland teams at the moment, and I'll throw, sorry, I'll throw, I'll throw um, the storm in there a little bit. I mean, yeah. they're, they're quite dominant, but um, they're a bit more of a mix these days mm-hmm. um, that 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 the selection is harder and you tend to choose um, groups from across the team so you don't necessarily have a core so yeah. it's not necessarily as helpful um, but but sometimes it'll come down to you know where those relationships are do they fall at the right spot yeah and look as a New South Wales fan I'm so happy to see the end of that cohesion that Queensland had for about 10 years I was sick of it um, I now, think the guy that got the guy that got the most, I think, not let down by this, but anybody who coached New South Wales during this time, guys like Laurie Daly, yeah, got so you know um, sidelined. But fundamentally, there's nothing he could really have done. Yeah, and yeah. and then now it's like now that Fittler took over, mm-hmm. and that and that New South Wales won, and Queensland dropped away by like say seventy percent or something. It might have been. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, Fittler's a genius because they're walking around without shoes on. And it's like, yeah. there's no evidence any of that's making any difference whatsoever. The main thing is Queensland dropping off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I always felt like uh, Craig Bellamy, who I always have felt like he was more focused on the storm and that he kind of just, he kind of fell into the New South Wales role a little bit because he was going so well with the storm. I felt like... He had some really good ideas as a coach. Like he he had that very mobile team he named, um, but he's running up against this crazy juggernaut of a team that 
you know, it's incredible to think that we went from State of Origin series where everything was locked up for 20-odd years and then this Queensland team sort of all comes through at the same time. They're all about the same age. Most of them play for the one club and they just roll through State of Origin for basically 10 years. Like, I mean, who saw that coming? Yeah, and and, 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 and you know Bellamy's record, I think, is the second worst. Yeah, you terrible. But, but that doesn't mean he's a bad coach. Yeah. I think that's where you really need to add some perspective on these guys is there's not really a whole bunch they can do. And I think that, that you know, I've had enough conversations with Mal. He says, I know I'm not a super coach, but I know what I had. Mm-hmm. So he had a great team that's, that's, a, that's, that's not that difficult to run. No offense to Mal, of course, but he, he did a fantastic job of keeping it together. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's certainly an easier task than coaching yourself well. Now, this uh, season, it, it feels like it's a two-horse race to me. Does that bear out in the statistics that it's it's really Penrith or Storm and everyone else is just making up the numbers? Or do you see that the stats show that there are other teams that could win it? I think that, uh, Simon, do you want to go first on that one? Yeah, I'll, what I'll do is obviously the Penrith are sitting pretty Mm-hmm. And they're doing quite well. And, of course, they have the massive advantage that they are a New South Wales-based team. So what, what I mentioned before about non-New South Wales teams having to win, they've got that advantage. And if they keep going, um, um, they're going to have a massive advantage in the future where the interstate teams are going to have to be so good to try and break that advantage. Um, so... So the Storm, while they are looking good, they are not as good as they have been previously. Mm-hmm. And so if it comes to, if they, for some reason, get an away final before the grand final, mm-hmm. then there's the potential that they might fall. The, the way the numbers are sitting <laughs> at the moment, yep. so there is that. So they everything needs to go right for them for the rest of the season. Okay. Going through, so they are not they yeah not not set. I, I would say. That's so, interesting. So one of the things is that if if you look across the history of the NRL, the you get you get seasons where you have a lot of high quality teams, mm-hmm. and you have seasons where you have some high quality, some poor quality. So for example, if you look at 1998, where we had 20 teams. You might have only had three or four teams capable of winning that grand final, and Broncos' numbers were just off the chart. Those mm. years, per se, tend to get quite predictable in terms of the market. So um, this year, we've actually seen a jump, not in only our model of its ability to be predictable, but also the market is actually a bit more predictable than normal. In other words, the odds on each game, they generally pick, you know, I think the odds for the weekend's game where you had the Bulldogs um uh, Penrith, I think, was at a dollar one basically. Mm-hmm. So you generally get more evenness across the competition. This year, there isn't as much evenness. There's some top teams and there's some bottom teams and there's the bits in between, but it, it's it's coming out more predictable and our system's actually more predictable this year than it normally would be. So because because when you get teams that are on the same level of cohesion, it comes down to the bounce of the ball, individual skill, things like that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, the, the other thing that's kind of interesting how it's played out is, you know, a couple of years ago, I think we had our top four that we sort of said, okay, these are the teams we think will make it, which I think was Souths and Canberra, I can't remember the rest of the sides, but you could see that pretty early on. 
really this year you've got two and then you've got everybody else. Mm-hmm. You've got the Roosters who are who are, have got injury struggles. You've got the Eels who have reasonable numbers but aren't necessarily a high TWI club. And you've got Souths who've got reasonable numbers except when they come up against really good teams, they, they do tend to battle a bit. Mm-hmm. The Then you've got basically the rest, which are all over the place. Yeah. You've got Manly, when they bring Travoyevich back in, have have that's really got their spine going. So they could theoretically jag it, as we call it. You know, you come in and you might they might come up against the Storm and the Storm have two or three injuries. Their numbers plummet. We saw that with the Cowboys a couple of years ago. You know, they were the best team in the comp, should win it. They, they lose Lynette Winterstein O'Neill. They lose their semi-final, they're out to the Roosters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes you can be literally the best team in the comp and just line up wrong in the finals. But what's what's also happened is Canberra have gone from top four to now bottom two in the changes that have been made by Ricky deciding to take his senior players out of the team. Mm-hmm. So they haven't really underperformed this year, but they had one sort of bad game. He performance-wise, he changes his thinking in terms of who the guys are, and you know the one thing we know is we don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. But their numbers are just rock bottom, so they're not actually underperforming. They've just changed their team so dramatically that they're not winning games that they would have won had they had their team earlier. Yeah, and that's when when he decided to. There was a couple of places he just rested. I think it was after the Panthers game, actually, where it all seemed to fell apart, fall apart. And I was horrified by that because I'm thinking, like, that's the, that's the opposite of what he needs to be doing because he had players that were, I think he had a couple of suspensions, like somebody was injured, and then he rested players, and it was like, oh, he's setting this up for failure. Yeah, and, and you know, that Penrith game, their numbers were good, and they lost to a team they should have. Mm-hmm. And then they played the Eels. They made four changes to the team, lost that game. Then the next game they made five changes to the team, lost to the Cowboys. You know, it just kept going. Yeah. And, and then you're trying to find the answer. Um, you know, they lose to South in a close one. They lose to, to Newcastle. But by then they'd come off almost 70% yeah. in terms of the numbers. So, of course, they're going to start losing those types of games. And... Um, and you feel for them because, you know, no coach is wanting to lose it. And if he's trying to make a point, you can understand it. But that's when we get in these situations where sometimes it's one change actually grows into five, grows into ten. Mm-hmm. Because the one change throws you off a bit and then it keeps going and then it actually starts to steamroll. Mm-hmm. So this is this looking like the most lopsided NRL season we've had in some time? Simon? Um, that's a good question. I think there is a big difference between the top and the bottom, mm-hmm. um, but there's not necessarily a lot of difference in that middle group. Um, and so, like the eight, the eights up for grabs. So the you know the bottom, it's like the the bottom four of the of the eight is definitely up for grabs. Yeah. But but come finals time. Um, whether or not they will get through. I know, you know, Ben's been doing a bit of work lately on on basically what you need to have during the season to 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 put you in a position to you know, be competitive at the end of the season. Um, and 
there's there's not necessarily a lot of those teams that that are genuinely competitive <coughs> um, at the moment. Um, but sometimes you know teams team seasons are, are um, measured on whether or not they make the finals because you know some of them are genuinely know that they're not necessarily grand final or you know premiership contenders. Um, but there, there is, does seem to be a bit of difference. But there, there's a lot of coaching changes this year, and often that drives some of these things because obviously a coach comes in and says, you know, wants to make their mark and makes it makes a, a fair few changes mm-hmm. through it. Um, so um, there, there, there is a there is a big difference between the top and the bottom for sure. I, th- I think it's it's a case of you know the league is not a league in this way. So like the English Premiership is a league. So generally. You know, if if you if you ran it that way, the Storm and the Roosters probably would have won more comps mm-hmm. over the last period of time because generally they will be number one or number two at the end of the season. But there's a final system to keep excitement because it isn't a promotion relegation competition. Otherwise, it'd be pretty boring. So having finals, and then you know, you know, there's so many examples. You look at say when Manly won the comp, I think it was 07 or 08, and they lose Cameron Smith. You know, in this in the preliminary final, you know, the Storm lose him, and Manly put 40 on them in the final. Mm-hmm. There's there's many times the best team has not won the comp. Yeah, that happens pretty regularly, but that's the way it pans out. But it's also important to say, well, this team was not the best team all year, or the best team through the majority of games. That they were the best in the finals and within the context of this setup. So. If you are a Sydney team and you make the eight, you're still a pretty good shot. And yeah. sometimes it might just come down to being, you know, up against a, a an interstate club who are not at their best. You win that game, you get another one in Sydney, away you go. Um, of course, the early preliminary games are, are outside of um, outside of uh, outside of Sydney. But for example, if you're a Sydney team and you play another Sydney team, because when Sydney teams play each other the home team only generally wins about 52% of the time. Mm-hmm. So just it, sometimes it's just how it lines up, and we've seen teams do it. And and the other components to this is state. This is what I really liked about last year with COVID is they had no state of origin break. Yep. It really messes with rounds uh, 11 to 19, whatever it might be. And so sometimes it just becomes like, okay, we want to get the Storm and we want to get, now it might be Penrith in the middle rounds. Mm-hmm because then we play against their poor teams. And so it's it's if, if the draw goes right, the other thing is if you get if you get poor teams early in the year, you might win games against those poor teams and then you sort of get convinced, okay, this is the team, and you hold with that group, and then you actually get this kind of level of cohesion that comes because you, people generally overchange when they lose games and they underchange when they win. Mm-hmm. And so they, you just go on a run and off you go. So... So much of it is dependent upon the draw. So the key for us when we talk to clubs is we say, you're not going to win it every year. It's just not built that way. You just want to be able to put yourself in a position, no matter what the draw is or no matter what your injuries are, that you're in a good position to go okay anyway. And a bad year is a top four and a good year is winning a comp. Yeah, and it's interesting because I I think, especially in Australia, we've always had this... um, We've always liked the big final occasion sort of thing where we want to see you do it with the pressure on in the one game under the spotlight. And those moments where somebody does something absolutely crazy in a a match 
and it is against the run. Like I think of Benji Marshall when he was throwing those flick passes as a as a teenager in the grand final in in 2005. Like we like to see those moments where an individual just rips the game open, and it, and it's in that it's on that big stage. Uh, I I think that in this part of the world we kind of value that a lot more than they do say over in England where it is a first past the post sort of finish. Yeah, and you have the drama of the situation. You had, you know, Newcastle winning, you know, in the greatest grand final of all time. Of course, I'd say that thing for Newcastle. But, um, you know, 97. Um, and you get those those sort of fairy tales. But it all, isn't always fair on the club um, that's done things right. I mean, if Penrith don't win the comp this year, it'll be either be something they did or some or something somebody else did, but it'll mm-hmm. probably come down to injuries. Yeah. And... and, and if the draw comes out wrong or something, I can't really think of it any other and, reason. And that's interesting because I, I've talked to people about last year, mostly Panthers fans, and so we're going to be biased. But I've yet to hear anybody say they felt like last season's grand final was a proper choke. But if we didn't win it this year, I think everyone would say they 100% have either – they should win it. It, it. They they really don't have excuses outside of – you know, Cleary gets injured, touch wood, that doesn't happen, or or some player on a different team does something absolutely ridiculous. Well, I, I don't think we Simon saw it as a choke, did we? I think I think we probably felt Melbourne was the stronger of the two teams. Um, yeah. You get chokes, chokes in the moment, but in terms of structure, Melbourne mm. are pretty well set up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking at it now. So we had we had the Storm to win that game. Um, so, uh, but I but it's, I'll tell you what, it's very different now. They're a yeah. very different side. They're very, very different setup. Yeah. And Melbourne do look, at, going by everything you've said, it kind of confirms that Melbourne, they're, they're more vulnerable this year than they did look last year or have looked for a number of years, to be honest. I think it's just amazing that they can lose all of those top four and still be there or thereabouts. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's the thing for us we love about this is that because they're following this kind of system, is that it's not about the who, it's about the how and the when and the, and their construction. And so they're, because they're following that, they continue to be successful. And all of a sudden there's another generation of kids that are becoming these geniuses and getting offered tons of money that may not have at other clubs themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess the, the stats that you have as well, they, they also back up one of the things that me and Andrew say is you never buy a player from the Melbourne Storm. Because they're part of the system and you take them out of that system and you're getting somebody that's probably not going to perform the same way they do in that Melbourne Storm system, unless their name is Greg Inglis and then all bets are off. Well, I think that that, that really depends on a couple of things. One, the position. Yeah. So so wingers and fullbacks, that's more of a delivery position. Yep, yep. Whereas, say, you know, centre is another component. And then the other part is what are they going into? Mm-hmm. So when Kroc leaves the storm, he goes from a high cohesion to a high cohesion club. Yeah. First six weeks, their spine is terrible, but a spine is a smaller group of people than a whole team. So that's why defence takes longer to get understanding because it's a whole 13 people working together, whereas a spine is the four guys working together. So, you know, in football, they call it the Bayern Munich barrage, which is you take someone out of Bayern Munich and they'll never be the same again. So... What you don't want is you don't want to take a play from a high cohesion club to a low cohesion club, mm-hmm. um, and particularly in a position where understanding is absolutely vital. 
So <clears throat> just one uh, one question I have, and it, it's like out of left field. I might chuck this to you, Simon. Is there a team this year in the NRL outside of, say, the top, you know, two or three teams that we should maybe look for to be a little bit surprising? Because I, I feel like we're going to have teams in the final series that just by the eye test, you're kind of going to think they're not a, a very good team, like a Dragons or a, uh, I don't know, like even a team like the Warriors might make it, who are generally not thought of as a finals team. Is there somebody that stands out in the statistics that could maybe fill that role where they might end up in a crazy position like sixth place on the ladder who people don't generally think of as a sixth-place team, something along those lines? Yeah, that's a really good question because even if you look all the way down to 13th spot with Wests, you've got West Sharks, Knights, Titans, Warriors, Dragons, Cowboys, they, they're all very similar, sort of putting out very similar markers at the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's a case of who can be consistent now through to the end of the season to actually take what they've got and really run with it. Because some teams out of that have the capacity to go backwards really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, like the Warriors, for example, and I'll throw the Warriors under the bus a little bit. Like, you know, if there's one team that, that never utilised um, the origin period because they were probably the least affected, it was that team um, with it. They've never, you know, they've made one grand final. They've never been in a position to, by the markers. So basically the markers you need to be truly competitive in the NRL, they've never really reached those markers in the entire history wow. over that period of time. The best period of time that they were, they were, you know, making, making grand finals, or making a grand final. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, they hopefully now with the influence of, you know, if, if Gus is, is doing what he's doing there as he did at the Panthers, you know, they will be on a path going forward because obviously there's no doubt they've got access to talent from that mm-hmm. perspective. The only issue they've got is um, they've under their current leadership they've got a bit of a reactive um, um, sort of selection policy depending on performance that's sort of been shown over history. Um, so it depends on how consistent they've they will be. You know, Dragons are putting together some good numbers. Potentially, you know, Anthony Griffin learned from that period of time at the Panthers. He had in that in that in that intermediate period mm-hmm. um, from that. You know, the Cowboys have the ability to put some numbers together, but um, sort of they're coming from a low base. So, you know, it's actually really going to be around um, consistency and and understanding of what they have and what they have to do to the end of the season. So it, the biggest surprise to me is actually West's. The numbers that they're actually putting together now are really good considering where they've been over the last couple of years. But as Ben said, that they're probably coming a bit late that mm-hmm. maybe they won't actually get to that eight. And if they do, they might do a very West thing and end up ninth. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> As they seem to do each season. So, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it'll be a really interesting scenario come the end of the year. But what I think will happen is by the time one of those, you know, from literally sixth down to 13th, Whoever gets that group to fill those last few spots in the eight, by the time they get there, first through to fifth, you know, potentially might have taken those few steps ahead mm-hmm. even further. Yeah. Um, and, and might be um, 
you know, a few steps ahead come finals time. What, one so of the things, of, sorry, I've answered your question without really answering your question. No, no, no it's, it's a great answer. Like there really is that whole block of teams where I can see where <laughs> and this is where the Dragons are interesting, as you say, because the Dragons are performing. I think they're another team that are performing a little bit better than they did last year with worse talent on the field, but they're consistent. And they're almost like an upgraded version of the the Bulldogs under um, Dean Pay in that they try really hard in games. And I guess that a lot of that comes down to their cohesion on the defensive side. Yeah. And I think on top of that, just doing all that, I think, you know, I think the Broncos, what happens with that group above, mm-hmm. with some of those teams, I think some of those teams I don't believe have the capacity to really take it on for the rest of the season because I think they'll they'll go, oh, this is not the right team, and they'll go and find the answer and their numbers will drop, mm-hmm. which means that the Broncos have some of those sort of that group of six above them later in the season. So the Broncos, I think, have the capacity to pick up a few more games. Mm-hmm. So. I think one of the challenges they get is they'll, they'll go on a run and then they'll come up against a Penrith and then, or a Penrith or a Storm and they'll put 40 on them. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the right result. Mm-hmm. But they go, well, hang on, we've done poorly, therefore we need to make a change. Sometimes you just got to say, you know what? That's exactly where we are right now. We are a team that should lose to Penrith or the Storm by 30 or 40 points. Let's just leave that behind and let's move on. Mm-hmm. And that's when you can start to make the real progress. I, 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 I didn't know what team Simon was going to say, but I'm in complete agreement about Wests. Mm-hmm. When they get, when they come up against a good team and get beaten badly, that 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 can often be the challenge for them. Interestingly, one of the things I've looked at as well recently is how many wins now does it take to guarantee yourself being in the eight? Yep. And because sometimes you'll get, for example, four or five teams on 12 wins. Some of those are inside the eight. Some of those are outside the eight. And there has been years when um, I think there was a year where the Roosters won nine games and a couple of draws and, and somehow made, and of course, the eight, the context of the eight changes because you have, um, you know, different numbers of teams in the competition. But generally that number now seems to be sitting at 14. 14 will guarantee you in, um, which is 28 points. Mm-hmm. But there are times when that might have you sitting in fourth place. There's times when that might have you sitting in eighth place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so oftentimes making the eight will come down to what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And and there are years where it's very even, and there's years where um where it's not even at all. That's so interesting. And one last, very last question, and it's another left field one. I'm a basketball fan. I'm a Houston Rockets fan. I don't know if you've covered the the NBA, but I can't imagine a team has ever fallen off in terms of their cohesion number from one season to another quite like the Rockets have. Do you cover the NBA? Uh, not yeah, not as intensely as we do um, the NRL and the other codes here in Australia. Mm-hmm. We've just got some basic markets, and to be honest, um, we haven't really looked at this season um, that much. But there's definitely signals. There's definitely signals from a TWI perspective, and, that, um, and like Ben talked about from a spine, you know, that small group of people can get cohesion up quick. Yep. Similar five on the five on the on the court eight sort of eight sort of people that tend to be a, spend the most time on the court. Um, so there's definitely some similarities <coughs> there. But it sounds like if they had a high turnover of people, 
they basically were a different team by the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't help. Like, it, yeah. it doesn't help. And, and you know, you get these scenarios where, we okay, we've got a new roster, let's play for a few games, or oh, that's not working, well, let's change the roster, change the roster, change, you know, change the starting, change the starting, change the starting. If, you, you know, you're always on this constant chance, so you can never actually get better. And as you're not getting better, everyone else is getting better. Yep. Um, during that period of time, so it's. I'd say generally the NBA has been dropping. Um, I remember hearing, I think Marv Allen, the commentator, yeah. saying, you know, after Chicago finished, that this is the end of the dynasties. Yep. You know, yep. I think probably two of the examples we'd say of low cohesion, not amazing talent. So high cohesion, not amazing talent, was Detroit Pistons. Yep. Their sort of heyday, you know, the the bad boys, you know, prior to the Chicago dynasty, and then San Antonio Spurs. Yeah. No one's really built themselves up in the same way since the Spurs kind of came off a couple of years ago. Yeah. There, there were definitely some signals um, into Milwaukee a couple of seasons ago and the Raptors um, during that period of, period of time through um, TWI. But like NBA, like most American sports, has very much become the sort of the cult of the individual. But in, in the NBA, it's the cult of the pair and the cult of the triple um yeah. at the moment the way they're putting their teams together so but if you've got enough talent um you know being a five-man sport you know an individual talent or a pair of talents can sort of really shift the game quite a bit sorry what was that ben if you play if you play 70 games you know in the nrl we're taking 13 people over 20 games or 25 games the nba you're taking three people and giving them 70 games yeah you know, it's and, easier to build that understanding yeah, and you, you get an example of, you know, the, the Lakers, um, you rest LeBron, LeBron for a period of time and you will, ed, you know, you'll scrape into the playoffs, LeBron comes back and then you'll, um, well, the, the aim is to get through. Mm -hmm. So, Just a quick earlier point I was going to make on the NRL too is, is you have teams sometimes that have injuries, but they'll have a good team in the bank. Yeah. So inside their squad, there is a good team waiting. And if you can just get them back onto the field, they'll be a strong side. So that's really the Roosters right now. They're okay. not fielding a very good team, but they still have a good team in the bank. Yeah. And if they can get them back on, they've got a shot. But obviously now they've lost, I think, friend for the year and then otherwise, then that's, that's not really plausible. Okay. Wow. Look... It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I could talk to you for another hour about all sorts of random sports and teams and trying to find the ones that stand out in in your statistics and ones that like have fallen away. It's just incredible to to know that you've found a system that really shows what's happening on the field and and things that you see with the eye test, the statistics definitely show that and, and in many cases show that before people sort of cotton on to what's happening. The West Tigers one, man, I'm going to start tipping them a lot more against worse teams because they're killing my tipping at the moment. <laughs> I don't know what to do with the West Tigers at the moment, so you've sorted that out for me, which is great. <laughs> the um, the State of Origin team's just come out. Oh, really? Yeah. you want me to read it out to you? Yeah, yeah, read it out. So, Jai Arrow... AJ Brimson, Kurt Capewell, DCE, Xavier Coates, uh, Tino Fasamale, I'm gonna, I don't know how to pronounce that properly. Yeah. Uh, Cole Felt, David Fafita, Moika Fotokai. This is, this is all my worst pronunciations of all time. I apologise to 
I do the same. Any Polynesian listeners, Dan Gagai, Harry Grant, Cohen Hess, Valentine Holmes, Kafusi, Felicia Kafusi, Reed Mahoney, Cameron Munster, Joe Offangali, Kalen Ponga, Jaden Sewer, Christian Welch. Welch. That's interesting. So they've gone uh, Mahoney at, at Hooker instead of uh, Harry Grant by the look of it. Well, Harry Grant's in the, in the team. Oh, uh, is he? Okay. He'll be a backup. Yep, yep. Yeah. So it depends. That's not. That's. I think that's in alphabetical order. So it's not obviously giving us any more information. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? It, it, it feels very much like the team last year, which it always go was going to. Um, there's no real surprises for me. It's it's interesting that, that Queensland always had a philosophy built on this notion of loyalty. Mm-hmm. You know, to those who've performed before, whereas New South Wales tended to run by form. And the difficulty is with form is form is only really team specific. Mm-hmm. So if you look at how Darius Boyd played for Newcastle, you know, when he was there, he struggled, you know, on and off the field, poor bloke. But when he turned up for Queensland, it was outstanding. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a there's an error to, to just looking at form um, without context of the environment the players in. And Queensland, you know, one of the reasons they've had to tended to go down this loyalty path is one, it worked to there's no one else mm-hmm. because they're so limited in their choices. So yeah, it's shocking when you see the player pool that they actually are selecting from. It is very, very small. Well, we see that as a huge advantage. Oh, if yeah. We see it as a disadvantage. We see it as an advantage. And, for example, in, in, in Olympic sports, there's an inverse correlation between the size of the pool available and the success of the team. So the USA, for example, does not do well in team sports in the Olympics. Yeah. Comparative to say New Zealand, who win like forty percent of their gold medals in team sports. New Zealand's not a great country on individual sports. On team sports, they smash it. Yeah. So that, that's it's you know when you don't have a choice, you keep picking the same guys, and they eventually come into form. Yeah. So that's a it's a it's just a different way of looking at it. But it's not a it's not a bad thing for Queensland. I think it worked okay. Yeah. I if there's a if there was any sort of rating that you have for a player that it doesn't matter what their club form says, it, they could still be picked for a, a rep team, it should be called the, the Dale Shearer rating. 100. Well, again, where, where did Rowdy play? Wasn't he a winger or a fullback? Is that, am I wrong in saying yeah, that? Yeah, he was, yeah. Yeah. So so that's that ability to deliver. Um, God bless him, Rowdy. You know, no matter if he was at the at the crushes, I think he was at the crushes at one stage. You went to a bunch of different teams, but you know, he um, yeah, that, that ability to deliver, and that's that's why oftentimes that the low cohesion clubs will provide the players in non cohesive positions. Mm-hmm. So they'll often provide the props and the and the wingers, mm-hmm. whereas the other the other well run clubs will provide the spines. Okay, that's oh man, that's so interesting. Look, thank you both for coming on. It has been a really fascinating discussion. First of all, Simon, where can we find you? Do, do you have a Twitter account? Do, do you have uh, a, a website, an outlet of some sort outside of GameLine Analytics? Uh, I do. Um, Simon at PTG is my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily use it a lot. I'm actually basically run all the social media through GameLine Analytics at GL Analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, I use my um, Twitter account um, on occasion myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, I run all the social media and all the uh, the newsletter and the website and all that other stuff. 
um, LinkedIn account, Facebook, etc., for Gainline. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, well, so Simon people... doesn't let me near the social media because I, I I get too uh, I get too eager at people. So <laughs> no, he like if he ran it every second every second tweet would be about kids nappies and what he <laughs> bought in <laughs> shops. As soon as the lockdown came in, I saw him talking about, you know, oh, the kids are going to be homeschooled and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) Beautiful. Spending time with the kids, it's just a wonderful time. I'm happy to be alive. (laughs) Uh, So where can we find you, Ben? Um, I'm at at Ben Darwin on Twitter um, and LinkedIn. But, but again, we've got a Facebook page. We've got a Twitter page for GameLine Analytics. And we've got a website, which is gainline.biz. Am I right, that, Simon? That's right. And, um, yeah, if so, and people, uh, they can go to the web webpage and sign up for our, um, our e-newsletter, mm-hmm. um, which comes out every month or two or three, depending on how busy um, I just, we just are. also make, um, make mention of how unbelievable a resource Rugby League project has been for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's so rare in world sport because most sports will have multiple feeders with multiple names of players and create, you know, multiple systems where the data is. And so for us to have rugby league project and we're a supportive rugby league project, mm-hmm. um, it's just incredible a resource and it's really made it possible for us to be able to do our work. So they're, they're really extraordinary. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's, I, I always say on the podcast, it's a website that, every single one of us uses at some point if you're in rugby league uh you've got any interest in it at some point you've gone to that website and it's it really is incredible and i've seen the the work andrew's done and it is constant he's always putting statistics up not only for this week's games in multiple leagues but going back you know decades he's always building upon the the base that they've got there and it, it really is it's incredible yeah, the fact that they've got teamless back now to 74, mm. you know, it, it just allows us to look at, you know, years like 1985, 1986, and how good Parramatta were. Yeah. It allows us to build that information because we need minimum, you know, 10, 15 years of data to pick that up. So, um, yeah, and, and if you ever want to know about Leeds, you know, second division, it's there. It's quite extraordinary. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, – look, Andrew would have been on today, but he's uh, he's – created another human being lately so he's bringing that up i said to him he's got two or three weeks of that and then he's got to come back on so we'll see how he goes well for the sake of rugby league he needs to stop doing that yeah i agree i agree so he needs to stop being selfish about it quite honestly <laughs> um look thank you both for coming on it's been a fantastic episode we will no doubt have you both on again if the panthers lose the grand final um, look, I need to hold someone responsible, so it might as well be you two. Uh, but, yeah, thanks once again for coming on, both of you. Pleasure. No worries, Freaky. Thanks, Freaky. And thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.